You are listening to a sermon preached at Still Bay Baptist Church in Still Bay, South Africa. For more information, please visit our website stillbaybaptist.co.za. May you be blessed in listening to God's Word today. Yes, Father, thank you that we can come and know you. That's the journey we are on this year, this year, Lord, and we pray that you will, you will grow us and work in us a desire to desire you and, and power and a strength to pursue you and the joy of finding you in that relationship that is fulfilling more than anything else on earth. Lord, that is our prayer for us, not as individuals, but also as a church, that you will take us on your path this year. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we, in this book of Tozer, um, The Pursuit of God, now a good book is like a good sermon. It should never add to the Bible. It should never change anything in the Bible. It should just be like a torch that shines on God's Word. Um, and, and it's help, to help you both understand and to apply. So firstly, it tells me what it says, and then it tells me what it says to me in this situation. And so no book is perfect, and I think maybe when you read through this book, you're going to get to some things you go, oh, I don't know if I biblically agree with that, and that's fine. And as is no sermon is perfect, I sometimes pick up from your frowns that I also said something that you will have to go think about a bit first. Um, but the good value of a good book and a good sermon is that it leads us not to the Bible, but through the Bible to God. It teaches us that the only way to get to God is through His Word. And so in this first chapter that Tozer wrote, it's almost like he realized, if I'm going to put a book out there that's called The Pursuit of God, then people are going to think, this is the way. He's going to tell me how to work to be acceptable to God. He's going to tell me all the things I must do and the changes I must make so that God can look down and go, "Mm, okay, you're fine enough. You can come in. And so he is making a big point of it that God is the one that pursues us first. Tozer actually later after this book, he wrote a prequel to this book called The Pursuit of Man to make the point that before you have any thoughts towards God, He's had thoughts towards you. Before you have taken any step in the direction of God, He has taken steps in the direction of you. And it's all of God. Um, Romans 5 verse 8 says, While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, um, Thomas Aquinas from the Catholic Church, he once said, well, wrote that all humans work towards God. And so some people get it 40% right, and some people get it 60% right, some people 10% right, some people 90%. And then God goes and He reaches down and He helps you with that bit that you couldn't do. So for some people, He really has to reach down because they've only got 20%. Some people, it's like a little 10% you must add. That's absolute rubbish. When we come to God, we bring 0%. Our best deeds are filthy rags. The Bible says. So God does everything. Everything is Him reaching out to to us today. And so maybe you're you're here today and you are not a Christian. And maybe you're here today and you don't even know if you want to be a Christian. But you can admit that there is something happening in your life 
Some, God is somehow working in. The Holy Spirit is somehow working in your life. And you might not like it, but you know it's there. I mean, C.S. Lewis famously said he was dragged into the kingdom of God, kicking and screaming. Because he realized, this is not what I want. This is not what my flesh wants. My flesh wants to be in the world and enjoy the pleasure of the world. But he realized this is the only way. This is the only truth. And so we must start with that truth. Don't ever think in anything we're going to do in this whole book and this whole year is us now earning anything from God or us paying God back for what we've done or us becoming. It's all of God. All of it is of God. The whole work of salvation is from God. Now that is a glorious truth. But Satan likes to take glorious truths and bend them until they say something that they didn't mean to say. And so Satan comes to people and he says, you know, it's all of God. God does everything, so you better do nothing. All you must do is you must say, Jesus save me. And he says yes, and you say thank you very much. And you put the pit ticket in your back pocket for salvation, and you go on and you live your own life. And you keep on living just like you would have lived if God didn't exist. Because it's Him. He does all the work. Now, that is obviously not true. And God in His work, Word shows us it's not true. And this book is a, is a light that shows you that that's not God's desire. God's desire is that you must respond to Him in His way. Um, now... Uh, we often hear this in, in the Old Testament when the prophets cry out to the people. They tell them, God says, look at everything I've done for you. Look how I saved you from Egypt. Look how I took you through the wilderness. Look how I, how I looked after you. Look how I got you into the promised land. Look how I defeated the enemies before you. And he didn't say, okay, now I've got you there. That's fine. Then he says, so why have you forsaken me? Why aren't you living for me? Why aren't you living, giving and sacrificing to me? So there was a response missing that is still missing today in a large part of the church. Um, I sat this week with one of the teenagers from our church, and she, God did an amazing work in her, and he did a very similar work in me many years ago, where you get to the point and you look at the average church and the average person in the average church, and you go, there has to be more than that. This can't be it. What we see all over the world are people calling themselves Christians. This can't be it. Now, this isn't an arrogant, why is everyone not as amazing as I am? Why are they not as holy as I am? This is a, a cry of, we must get better. There must be a better understanding of what, God, what it means to be God's people. What it means. And this, what, when you get to that point where you have that concern about the church, God takes you on a journey where he shows you there is something better. There is something deeper. There's something more. Um, and that's the journey that he takes us on. So um, I'm going to ask four questions of you that you need to ask yourself. You on, need to answer that. Don't answer it for your husband. Don't answer it for your children. Answer it for yourself. The first question is this. Do I believe believers can have a personal relationship with God? Now, you might think, yes, of course, yes. But that's not true of many people who are Christian. Their understanding of Christianity is that it's something I belong to. So I go to a church and I go through the motions and I go home and I pray when I'm in need. 
and prayer is a very official thing. It's like writing a letter to the government. So I, I, I put my requests and my words to God, and then I go back to my own life. And they, they don't believe that God wants to have a relationship with me in the same way that I, for instance, or similar way that I have, for instance, with my wife or with my children or with my best friend. It's, it's very foreign to them, that concept about God. Um, and what also happens then is that people, when they start experiencing Christianity, it becomes about other things. Tozer talks about the God and. And so, I love God because He looks after me. I love God because He healed me. I love God because He gave me a job. Now, are those things bad? Of course not. We praise God for what He does. But our primary connection with God can't be what He does for us. Now, ask yourself, if I asked you, do you love your wife? And you say, yes. And I ask why, and you say, because she makes me coffee at 6 in the morning. And if she stops making you coffee, well, then I'm going to have to reconsider this relationship. As I, but why do you? Now, I love my husband because he provides for us, and he, and he brings money in, and he puts petrol in my car. Okay, but... That's not the primary core of a relationship. And maybe, hopefully, you haven't lost it, but you remember the beginning? We just wanted to be there. He just wanted to be in the presence of this person. He just wanted to hear them speak. He just wanted to hear how they think and how they feel about life. Whether there was coffee involved is immaterial. You wanted to know this person. And that is what God is saying when He says, Do you believe we can have that with God, a relationship. Now, there's a couple of cautions here. The first caution is that we do not get to define how that relationship will look. Because this is often people's frustration. They read a good book by Whitfield or Tozer or someone, and Whitfield describes his relationship with God. And they go, I want that. I want that, and if I don't have that, I don't have God. And what often happens is that what you read is not always the best in full picture of this person's relationship. I need to say this. I don't like saying this, but I have to say this. There's a tendency when you read Tozer's book that you go, this guy got it. He must have been a perfect guy. It must have been such a lovely person to be in company with. Tozer was a horrible husband. Go and read his wife's autobiography. He was a horrible husband to her. Does he write about that in his writings? No, he doesn't. And so we must be very careful to read what someone tells us and say, I need that or I don't have God. If I'm in a church service and there's no healing, then God wasn't there. If there's no gold dust falling from the sky, then I'm just not interested. Then I didn't experience God. This book will teach us, take us on a journey, what is, how does a relationship with God look as defined by Him, not by me? The second danger also, or the third one now, is that many people want to have that journey, that experience with God without the Bible. Someone actually told me last year, he said, he wants to really hear from God now, so he's not going to read his Bible for six months. Okay. What? Are you crazy? How on earth can you close God's mouth and then you want to hear from God? So the danger in 
in a journey of wanting to experience God is that we start making it something that might feel spiritual and feel good, but is not what God defines in what He says in His Word. That's the first question. The second question is, do I believe God desires to have such a personal relationship with me? Now you might go, I know some good Christians. I can imagine God loves spending time with them. But I know me, and God knows me, and I can't imagine He wants that with me. That's just false. The whole Bible is a story that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that he, whoever believes, here's my offer, will have eternal life and not perish. Okay, so do I believe that God desires to have that relationship with me? Now, not all Christians believe that. Um, there's a concept called deism. Um, that is the idea that God put the world in place, so He created everything, He made the laws, He made the rules, and then He left. And so now we are here, and we need to do it. We need to be independently working out in His system. He is far off, He's not involved here anymore. People in deism doesn't really pray, because why would they pray? God is not personally involved here anymore. If you go read the start of the United States, so many of their initial leaders and presidents were deists. They didn't believe that there's a God that they can connect to. They believed God gave us a world now to do what we should be doing with it. Um, Now, many people would not say they are deists. So you ask them, are you a deist? No, no, not at all. But functionally, they are. See, if you look at their life, they don't really live as if there's a God next to them. They live as if God has now given them instructions, and they're now getting on with the work. They don't live in the presence of God, live with a relationship with God. And so many people, for instance, not many, luckily not many, some people have this idea that if my kids leave home one day and they have a good job and they never phone me again, then I've been a very successful parent because I've taught them to be independent and they don't need me anymore and they live their lives. And that's how some people think God feels about us. I've saved you now. I've given you everything you need. There you go. Go live your life. I'll see you in the end. And it's just not true. Now the third question, and now it gets personal. Do I desire such a personal relationship with God? Do I desire to have a relationship with Him? Like I said, not experience Him doing things for me. That's not primary. Do I desire to sit in God's presence and just to know Him? to hear from Him and to get to know Him better and love Him more. Do I desire that? Because without a desire, you're never going to get there. And then the second, fourth question from that, am I pursuing such a personal relationship with God? Do I think I must desire it and it's going to happen? Or do I realize there are certain things I'm going to have to do to get that relationship? Now today we're going to look at it. The rest of the book is going to look at various things. But there are things that must be done in this pursuit of God. So we are going to look at a text in the Bible that deals with this idea of God reaching down, saving us, and then what our response must be. You can open your Bible. The topic is following hard after God. 1 Peter 1, we're going to read from verse 23 to chapter 2, verse 6. Before Anton comes and reads for us, we are just going to pray. Yes, Father, we are thankful for your word that is a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. That we do not have to guess or figure out for ourselves how to live this life. 
but that you tell us, that you show us. And Lord, help us. Help us to, to do that. Help us to listen and put self to death. That so often stands in the way. It's my way or that's no way. And so, Lord, we thank you that we can come and listen to you. We, put the, we pray all of this in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. Anton is going to read for us. Thank you, Anton. There's a paper over here for you. 1 Peter 1 from verse 23, then all the way to chapter 2, verse 6. Is this? Right. Okay. God being the ultimate definitional authority speaks to us in these sections. Let's hear what he says. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower fails, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So, put away all malice and all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted, the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourself, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. I really like the book of First Peter. I think one of the reasons is because it's one of the books in our Greek classes that we translated from the Greek into English. And so then you get a real deep understanding of what's going on here. But it's also a beautiful book describing what it means to be born again, what, the, what God does. There in the third verse of the first chapter, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. God's glorious work in us to make us born again. Um, then in chapter 1 from verse 1 to verse 12, he talks about this great salvation. How in spite of the suffering we face now, it's worth it because we live with a hope for when he's going to come back again. And so all the way from verse 1 to verse 12, he's just talking about the things that God did. 
And then the book ends because God, we have nothing to do in reply, and it's all just about God's work, and the letter ended there in verse 12. No. Then from verse 13, he starts saying, How then shall I live if I am born again? What then is God's requirement on my life? Not to earn salvation. I've already got salvation. I'm already born again. How does someone who are born again live? And then he speaks about it right there. And there are four things he says. There are four commands with some participles around them. The first one is in verse 13 where he says, Set your hope fully on grace. My hope is not on ESCOM. My hope is not on Ramaphosa. My hope is not on the DA. My hope is not on the EFF. My hope is not on my own solar panels. My hope is not on my pension plan or the money I put away. My hope is in the grace of Jesus, the goodness of Jesus that I don't deserve. That's the first thing you know you need to live. The second thing is be holy in some of your conduct. Be holy 30% of the time because that's a pass rate in South Africa. No. Be holy in all your conduct. So in every single thing you do, you do it as God wants you to do it. And then the third one in verse 17 is conduct yourself with a reverent fear. I am not the big chief in this relationship. I am not as important as I think I am. God is. And I'm humbly on my knees every moment of the day, listening to Him, thinking about Him. And then the fourth one is love one another. Not love the ones that listen to me or do what I tell them to do or are kind to me or respond to my love. Love one another. Tremendous love. Is that possible? Always holy, brotherly love, all of that. Is that possible? Only with God. I love it. In, in your own strength, not at all. In your own strength, it's not going to work, but with God. Now, it's, and that's why he, he carries on there. But um, this is very important to realize. He didn't say, God did everything for you. Now wait until you feel spiritually strong enough to start doing these things. Some people live at this misconception that we are still in the upper room. God has saved me now, but now I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to change my life. I'm just going to pray and pray and pray and pray and pray and pray until He gives me the power. Then I'll start loving people. Then I'll start living a holy life. That's not true because we have the Holy Spirit. They waited for the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit. Peter later on says, you've been giving everything for godliness, life and godliness. So when he gives you this command, he says, in God's strength, you are able to do this. Don't listen to Satan when he says, oh, everyone makes mistakes. Live for this. Make this your desire. Be like this. Um, why, why is this possible? Verse 23, since you have been born again, that's why it's possible. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this is the word, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. He says, Your change wasn't like all other changes. Your change wasn't human changes. And what are human changes? Human changes are waking up on the 1st of January and say, this year I'm never going to eat a chocolate again. That is me. And by the 3rd of January, you go, see, I told you, I'm going to give up chocolates this year. I have it in me. And then when it's your birthday, you say to everyone, please send me some chocolates. I need some chocolates. 
human changes can last a little bit. And, and you know what other different thing, strange thing human changes does? I'm able to stop this evil in my own power, but the moment I squeeze it down, it pops up somewhere else. Like, okay, I, I am not going to shout at my husband anymore. And then I start shouting at the neighbor. Because I don't have the power to change me. Flesh doesn't have the power to change me. But we are not changed by ourselves. We are not a human change. We have an eternal, lasting change that happened when you were born again. And what, what caused it? The good news. When you heard the gospel and God took that good news in your heart and changed you. I think we are so often scared to evangelize people because we're scared. What if they don't listen? What if they don't accept it? I'm going to come to them and I'm going to tell them God is good. He's the boss. That they are a sinner. They are heading for hell. But you don't have to worry. Jesus died on the cross. And by repenting and living your life for him, you too can have eternal life. And I'm so scared. I tell them that and they go, yeah, so what? Oh, did I do it wrong? Did I use the wrong words? The power of change is not in my ability to bring the gospel. The power of change is in the gospel. We give it to someone. God uses it in that person. Um, okay, so now he said this. You have been changed. This is what God's done. Now he says, what must you do? And for those who are with us in Colossians, you will understand what he's going to do now. He's going to tell you what to put off and what to put on. The same thing in Colossians. He's going to tell you now that you have been born again, what are the things that you need to stop doing and what are the things that you need to start doing. And so there in the next verse he says, So put away all malice, all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Malice is a strong dislike of other people. You know, sometimes Christians misunderstand God's holy wrath and think we can have it ourselves. That person I dislike because they do that and that and that. God says, that's not your call. Your call is to love them until they change. That's your call. Love them, give them the gospel, bring them to Jesus. It's not your judgment to decide they are bad and that I can dislike them. Put it away. The next one is deceit. To deceive someone by trickery. Oh, I think I'm so clever and I did this this way and I benefited from them and they didn't. Oh, look how great I am. The next one is hypocrisy. To give an impression of having certain purposes or motivations while in reality having quite different ones. Um, so, yeah, I'm not going to use that example. Um, because um, this is when and the scary thing about this is you can fool yourself. You can do something and you've told yourself, you know, I'm just really doing this because I'm caring. But meanwhile, you're actually a very selfish reason. You want to get your way. You think your way is the only way and that type of thing. Often in prayer groups, people love being in a prayer group, not because they want to pray, because they want to know what skinner is going on. So they motivate, no, no, I, I want to be there. Because I want to pray for people. But if you're honest with yourself, that's not true. You just like to know what's going on in everyone's lives. And this is what he's talking about. This idea that I'm living with a mask. I'm acting like I'm this in front of people. But behind the scenes, there's a completely different thing happening. And then there's envy. Intense jealousy over others and the things they have. And then slander, speaking badly about others. 
gossiping. Now, I said in Afrikaans service as well, back in the day when our country still had a sense of morality, you always said, don't say something behind someone's back that you won't say to their face. Have you ever heard that one? Don't say something. That doesn't count anymore. Have you been on Facebook? People say things straight to people that they shouldn't be saying straight to people. They don't say it behind people's back anymore. They just say it to their faces. So we need a new one. And I think the new one must be, don't say anything to someone's face that you don't want other people to say to your face. It's as simple as that. Don't talk to someone or about someone in a way that you don't want other people to talk to you or about you. Okay. So the, um, what's happening here is that, is this the only problems that they have? No. In Colossians, there's again a different list. I think what happens here is that Peter knows his audience, and he knows the people I write the letter to, they struggle mainly with this. Every community has their primary sins. And why it's a primary sin is because it's accepted amongst each other. So it's not so bad. So then I went and I thought, what would be Stillby's primary sins? Racism. Terrible, absolute racism. Judging someone by the color of their skin. Thinking someone will be better or worse before even getting to know them based on the color of their skin. It's horrible. And you know what? We've been here almost 13 years now. It's worse than it was when we got here. It's far worse. The, the white people are tracking lar. What's the English for that? They're trying to make a white enclave where no one else comes in. Horrible, horrible, sinful. Um, someone once said, and I, and I can understand that, he said, we all have racist tendencies. Because we like what we like. And when a culture disagrees with that, we struggle a little bit. That, that we all have. But he says some people are blatant racist where they say, I don't like white people. I don't like black people. And he said, I don't think you can be saved and say that. Because what you are saying is that I have more value in me in being white than you have in being black. And saved people know there's no value in them. So to be in a place where you still think I'm more important because I'm white means you're not saved. You've never been on your knees before God and realized I am nothing without you. That's one big sin. I think the other big sin is pride and self-centered living. We don't get upset. Um, yeah. So when COVID broke out, a couple of things changed. More people were upset that they can't walk on the beach than about the people in Malkotfontein who can't go to work and won't eat. What does that tell you? Me. You're touching me. You're touching the things I like. Now the irony is some of those people haven't been on the beach for 10 years, but now suddenly they're upset that they can't walk on the beach. Each community have their sins, and we need to put it off. We need to be different than the rest of this town. We need to be different than the rest of this community. We need to put these things away. And you know why? Why does he put it here? Because often these things, or your list, is the thing that's standing in the way of you having a personal relationship with God. That's the thing. You try and you try and you try and, and you realize, actually, the main reason why I can't get to God is because I refuse to love people. I live for myself. 
The reason why there's this barrier between me and God is because I've got a hypocrisy and I actually am not completely who I say I am. Or malice. So, the first step in this is putting off. Putting off the things that's standing in the way of connecting with God. And then he gets to the put on in verse 2 and he says, Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. So what must we put on? A longing for spiritual milk. Can you long for something that you've never tasted? Can I come to you and you've never had sushi and I say, you need to develop a longing for sushi. You need to do, you must sit there and think, oh, I need sushi now. Can you do it? You're just going to, uh, raw fish, no thank you very much. I love the way he explains it. Because he says, like a baby longing for milk. Now, when the baby is born, have they ever tasted mother's milk at that point? No, but they know they need something. And once they've tasted that milk, that's it. Nothing else must please ever get in the way of me getting to my milk or I'm going to scream my lungs off. So we can't create a longing, but we are born with a hunger. And we need to find out what fulfills that hunger and start longing for that. Now our whole life, as the whole world's life, is to realize there's a hunger and try to fill it with other things. Fill it with money and having my house look exactly the way I want it to look. And then I'm still upset about the chair that's off color white and it should have been cream white. And, and everything, you try and you try and you try and then you try with alcohol and you try with money and you try with friends and you try with relationships. Sometimes in our teenager group then, there are some girls or boys who just can't be can't not be in a relationship. So they are dating someone, and if that breaks up, within a week they're dating someone else because they just need it. They need to take that relationship to fill this hunger. But it never does. It never, never does. But the moment you taste it, the thing that fills the hunger, the spiritual milk, then you go, I need to get this. And you develop that longing for it. Um, now what is the spiritual milk here? From the context we can say, maybe it's the Word of God. He's been speaking a lot about how the Word of God is the thing that changes us. It's a thing. So maybe we need to long to just read the Bible more. Maybe that's what he's saying. But it isn't what he's saying. Because let's read on. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. The thing we long for is not the Bible. The Bible is the pathway to the person we long for. And it's God. And so that is the thing that the moment you've started tasting that the Lord is good, you realize this fulfills the hunger. And you start pursuing that. And you start going for that. Um, how, now, how do you develop this longing? How do you take this desire and fill it? So first thing is to obviously to make an effort to get it. To make an effort. If I've tasted that the Lord is good, I will make an effort to spend time with Him where nothing is distracting me at that moment. And it's just me and Him I will also remove everything that is trying to fill this hole and get it out of the way so that God can fill this hole. Because the thing about these things we use is not that they are useless, it's that they are just not good enough, but almost. If they were useless, we would try it once and we would give up. But we go into a relationship and you go, oh, that wasn't good, but maybe the next one will be better. Or you earn your first million, oh, maybe the next million will fill that hole. And we have to get those things out. Why? 
Because the moment we start focusing on other things, it destroys our longing for God. I'm going to show you a picture, and it's a bit of a trigger warning. Um, not a trigger warning, a shock warning. What do they always say? A baby longs for his mom's milk. But sometimes the mom can't give him milk, and in some poorer or other communities, then they would give the kids condensed milk. Okay, so would that kid love condensed milk? Absolutely. Is it good for the kid? No. <laughs> this baby was brought up on condensed milk. At 16 months, weighs 27 kilograms, triple X diaper and his dad's clothes. Now, we obviously don't blame the child for this. But this shows you what happens when you start chasing something else to fill that hunger. It, it helps a bit. It helps a bit. It helps a bit. It helps a bit. And my life gets destroyed in the process. And one day I stand and I say, I knew God was here, and I started pursuing this thing, and in the beginning it wasn't so bad, I thought this could work, and I kept on pursuing, 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 and now I'm at a point where I realize I'm so far from God, and my life is in such a mess. Okay, so, he then carries on, and he explains to you, how do I long for God? How do I get to Him? How do I make my longing for Him? Verse 4, he says, as you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but the sight of God chosen and precious. Precious. How do I do it? I come to Him. Isn't it such a beautiful picture of, I don't bring anything with. I don't come and bribe Him and say, God, I did this. Can I come to you? God, today I have read my Bible. I have been nice to three people. Can I come to you? Just coming to Him. Now, if you think about it, that's a bit of a strange concept. If God is everywhere, how can we come to Him? Aren't we with Him already? Now, Tozer later in the book deals with this, but there's the idea, there's the, there's the truth of His all-presence, and there's the experience of His all-presence. So this coming is the idea that I know God is here, but I've been ignoring Him. And now I focus on Him. I step into His presence. Sometimes, you know, often you hear worship leaders do this. Then they say, Holy Spirit, we welcome you here. God, we welcome you. And I always think, God was here first. He was long, be long before you. Welcome yourself here. I understand there's an idea of, that question is actually God work here. That's actually what they're saying. And that's what they should be saying. But I don't have to make God come to me. God is there. I just have to come to Him. In the same way when I started dating my wife or my husband, I had to get on my bicycle, I had to get in my car, I had to get on the train, and I had to go to them and be in their presence, and that was the best. Letters and phone calls, they were fine, but being in the presence was the best. That's the same with God, coming into His presence, being with Him. He is the cornerstone rejected. Reminds us very much of that Israel um, sermon that I preached when there was people who rejected Jesus as the cornerstone. But now, there are people coming to Him. We come to Him because we know in the eyes of God, Jesus is precious and He's um, chosen and precious. Then He explains what happens now when I've come to Jesus. Now I've made the step, how do I live to make sure I experience Him? Verse 5, He says, For you yourselves are like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 
For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. How do I experience God? I put off, I come to Him, and I build myself on Him. In other words, He becomes the foundation of everything I am. Every decision I have, every relationship I have, every decision on how to spend money, every decision on how to spend time becomes about what does God want. Now, something that happened to me, and maybe it happened to you as well. I grew up in a church where almost everyone I knew was in the church, and you go through all the motions and Sunday school and everyone's in church, and then you get to about grade 10, 11, and now you need to start thinking about what you're going to do one day. And they would bring in all the specialists and ask you the questions. And what are your abilities? And, and everyone's like, well, I want to become a farmer because I love working with animals. And I want to become an actuary because oh, they have so much money. I want to go there. And people made these choices. And thinking back of it now, and this includes me, not a single person said, I wonder what God wants me to do. I wonder what, what job I can do for God one day. I wonder what... God is going to use me for with the gifts and abilities that He's given me. It was purely a secular decision of how I think I can earn money and look after myself. And the danger is that, that we do that. There's Jesus over there. Okay, my church going, I'm going to build on Him. My prayer life, okay, I'll build it on Him. Um, my children, depends how naughty they are. If they're very naughty, I'll come and I'll pray about them. But the rest of the stuff I build on me and my decisions, and what I want from life, and what I think is good. And then I wonder why I'm so far away from God when I'm sitting in my own home over here, and He is over there. But if I make that decision to say, Jesus, everything about you, everything on top of you, you the foundation of everything. And it's not building your house and sitting there and waiting for Him to do everything. What does the text say? We become um, a priesthood, Offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Um, and they, yeah, spiritual sacrifices. It's about giving up your life, about living for Him, asking Him what He wants, what He wants you to do, everything about Him. And that is what it's about. Now I'm going to ask you those same four questions again. Do I believe believers, according to, do I believe when I say, do I believe according to the Bible? According, that believers can have a relationship with God. When I read a text like this, do I suddenly see that there's a God who says, come to me? There's a God that says, in the same way, a, a baby longs for his mother, for the, the spiritual milk he, he or she gets from the mother. Do you, I want you to long for me like that. I want you to have that same desire for me. Do you have it? Now, that's the next question. Do you believe God wants to have a relationship? Again, it's what the text says. Third one is, do you have a desire? Do you have a desire to have this relationship with God? Now, what often stands in the way here is my Christian history. The church I grew up in, the family I grew up in, how we did church. And so for many people, Christianity was from childhood. You put on your best clothes according to your mom, not according to you, because the tie is definitely not your best clothes, and you go to church, and you sit there, and you listen, and they talk about God, and you go home, and you take your tie off, and thank goodness, now it's over, and you can play again. And so, built into you became this thing that Christianity is just this thing that's over there. It's something I must do, 
Something must involve them. Now, the scary thing is, parents who are on fire for God, children can experience it like that. That is very scary, but it's true. And so then you grew up, and that just became your norm. You come to church because there's not much better to do on Sunday morning. So if there's good rugby on, I'm definitely not going to be at church. You guys need to realize that. Someone invites me for a fishing trip, oh, you're not going to see me yet. And I like the people, and the coffee is okay. Now there's good coffee. Jean and Selena makes good coffee for us. Um, but it's never about God. It's never about Him. It's about the things. And then when you get challenged with it, some people get upset. No, man, I'm happy with how things are. Is God happy with how things are? That's a more important question. And then the next one is, am I pursuing it? Um, am I pursuing God? I, when I start having that desire, am I doing the things that He tells me to do? So if I'm here and I don't have the desire, what do I do? Well, maybe you've just never tasted that the Lord is good. And then ask Him, Lord, I'd like to taste that you are good. I, I can't think of any experience I have. What most probably will happen is he'll open your eyes to good things in your life that was him. And you'll go, what? So you are good. So what if you're here and you at one point have tasted that the Lord is good, but you've walked away. You've wandered off and pursued other things. The call in Revelation is go back to your first love. Stop doing the things that is harming this relationship. Go back to Jesus. What if you are longing for this and desiring it, but it doesn't seem to be fulfilled? You have this desire, God, I want this, but you just feel so far away. Now, the first thing is, again, is don't define for God how this must look. Don't define for God. God, if I feel like this, then I'm going to know that you are close to me. Don't define for God the external and, or even the internal feelings of what it must be. I mean, the story of Elijah for me is so telling. He's on Mount Carmel and he experiences fire coming down. Man, have you ever had such an experience of God? Next moment, he's depressed, wanting to die. Why? Because the external things can't feed our soul. Jesus feeds our soul. And he wants to die and Jesus take, and the God takes him on a journey and he comes to a cave. And an earthquake comes past. Oh, another big thing. Hey, Carmel, we had the fire and now we have the earthquake. And he, oh, God is not there. Then a storm comes past. God is not there. And then the Hebrew says, in the silence of no wind, and he falls down because God is there. It isn't about feelings predominantly. It isn't about experiences predominantly. It's about Jesus connecting with him, knowing him. So, and also, see if there are things that are in the way. If you're not going to listen to God to love your wife, you're not going to experience Him. If you're not going to listen to God to love your children, you're not going to experience Him. Put off. He's given you the power to put off, to put on, and walk in the right way. But come to Him. Strip yourself of everything. Sacrifice. Offer. Build your house there. I'm going to end with this. A life lived for Jesus is a life that experiences Jesus. Don't live off here on your own with your own goals and your own motives, and you wonder, why does God feel so far away? A life lived for Jesus is a life that experiences Jesus. What we're going to do now is we're going to pray all together. So if you have your book here, you can go to the end of the first chapter. 
We're going to pray that prayer together. I'm going to put it on the screen, but it is quite small. Um, are we allowed to pray other people's prayers? Well, in the same way we're allowed to sing, sing other people's songs. Um, we can. Um, I hope you've read through it because it is quite personal. And I hope you're going to agree with them. If you don't agree, please don't pray with. But this is a call to God to say, God, I need to develop this desire more. I need to get to the place where I want more. I'm not even there yet. Take me to the place where the fire in me is burning to want to know you. So let's all, as we are staying seated, because it's better to see that way, we are going to pray this prayer together. O oh God, I have tasted thy goodness, and it has both satisfied me and made me thirsty for more. I am painfully conscious of my need of further grace. I am ashamed of my lack of desire. O oh God, the triune God, I want to want thee. I long to be filled with longing. I thirst to be made more thirsty still. Show me thy glory, I pray thee, that so I may know thee indeed. Begin in mercy a new work of love within me. Say to my soul, rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. Then give me grace to rise and follow thee up from this misty lowland where I have wandered so long. In Jesus' name, amen. Yes, Father, that is our prayer. And I, my prayer is that it will be the prayer of us as a church, but also us as individuals, that you will open our eyes to what is really going on in our lives if we are busy pursuing things that are not you if we are trying to fill this hunger with something that's not you. But Lord, I also want to pray for those who has the hunger but are struggling to find you, struggling to pursue you. Lord, that you'll also open their eyes to who you are and how you choose to reveal yourself to them, how you choose to connect to them, how you cho choose to show your kindness and your personality and your grace and your mercy. But above all, Lord, take us on this journey to know you and to follow you and to love you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope you were blessed in hearing God's word today. For more information or prayer, please visit our website stillbaybaptist.co.za. May you find your life in Jesus Christ and him alone.